You're listening to Red Flag Radio, and we record the show on Aboriginal land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast, as you know. Welcome back, dear listeners, and welcome new listeners. We talk about politics on this podcast, so if you can't stand politics, then probably not the right podcast for you. But maybe if you're just curious, (laughs) um, have a listen and see what you think. We've also got a bunch of episodes, if you look through our previous episodes, um, that talk about some pretty amazing historical uh, events, theoretical debates, and we always try to talk to and invite guests onto our podcast who are uh, not just armchair socialists, but actually active revolutionary socialists on the most part. And we've got two of those on the show today. If you want to support our podcast financially, which does happen a bit and we appreciate everyone who donates money through patreon if you want to add your name to that list of wonderful people you can do that at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast so our topic today is why uh, this is my working title it might change in the final cut but my working title is why cop 26 (laughs) is a load of crap and we've got two guests to uh, discuss this, uh, Annika Demanuel Cormack, and they're both climate activists in Melbourne, and they're part of Uni Students for Climate Justice, sort of does what it says on the tin, and they are part of organising uh, the Australian wing or the Australian action that is part of a global day of action um, responding to COP26, which is happening on Saturday, November the 6th. So. If you are listening and it's before Saturday, November the 6th, then do get along to the action and the details are in the um, episode notes. So if you're catching up and you're like, wait, what's COP26? Um, It's the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties. Conference of the Parties is what COP stands for. It's very boring, really. Um, It's running in Glasgow and it's being talked about all over the place and particularly here in Australia um, because of Australia's terrible record um, on fossil fuel emissions and so on, which we'll get to. But um, internationally as well, it's a real focal point of climate activism. And so uh, the amazing Greta Thunberg has been talking about this too. She was asked in The Guardian a few days ago in an interview about whether she was optimistic about the COP gathering, and she said, I am not. <laughs> in, in summary, I am not. She said, nothing has changed from previous years, really. The leaders will say, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll put our forces together and achieve this and then they'll do nothing. So she said, we will, we can have as many cops as we want, but nothing real will come out of it. So down with cop and down with the other form of cops. Um, even the Queen had the same position as Greta Thunberg. I don't know if you guys caught that. The the microphone picked up the Queen saying, oh, all they do is just talk and talk and talk and nothing happens. So there you go. There's one thing the Queen said that um, I agree with. Annika, welcome back to Red Flag Radio. Hi, Roz. Hi. Um, Give us in a nutshell your analysis of COP. I mean, you've been a climate activist for a while. um, 
yeah, as an approach to tackling climate change, there are people who do think that these kind of conferences and you know the Paris Agreement and things that have gone before make a difference. So, what's your analysis? Well, I think like, yeah, you mentioned that just before that this is the 26th of these conferences um, to happen. And since the first ever um, COP that happened, emissions have only continued to rise um, all throughout the 90s and the 2000s. So basically in my lifetime, um, the emissions of countries all across the world have continued to go up and that's despite um, different agreements being signed. So the Kyoto Protocol being signed in 97, the Paris Agreement in 2016 and countries have continued to expand their fossil fuel production, continue to burn coal, continue to um, build uh, coal-fired power plants and recently, you know, there's been massive expansions in um, natural gas um, and all the rest of it. So I think that's a bit of an indication that even when these um, things are signed and all these debates and discussions happen at these conferences, not much really changes. So I think getting together like Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison, um, Joe Biden into a room, I don't think they're going to really be able to do much to solve the climate crisis purely because they're not actually that interested in doing it because the continuation of like profits in their countries depends on the continued expansion of uh, dirty mm. energy production. And so, um, Cormac, you've been looking at some of the climate science and reading the reports that some of us are too afraid to read in some ways, but what – in terms of kind of where we are, so politically this is what's happening. People are going to all get together in Glasgow. Um, scientifically, where are we with climate change at this moment in time? Yeah, well, thanks for having me here, Roz. Good to be here even to talk about something so dire. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the starting point has to be for any of these things that emissions are continuing to rise and they have been for 30 years um, and nothing on that front is changing. Um, so the, which I think you can kind of like miss the wood for the trees when you hear about all of the big changes around net zero and the announcements around the world about all these, you know, massive companies that are shifting things, nothing has really substantially changed. Um, so in twenty uh, in sorry in twenty fifteen, uh, the outcome of the COP twenty one was the Paris Agreement, um, which set the goal of limiting warming to preferably one point five degrees. Um, in order to do that, you would need to cut fifty five percent of global emissions by twenty thirty. Um, and the uh, in the lead up to COP twenty six, a report has just been released by the UN, um, which covers. Uh, all of the projected nationally determined contributions, which are like the goals that, you know, are the main outcome of the COP, of each of the COPs, um, by which each country, you know, determines the amount of uh, uh, reductions it's going to have in emissions. Um, and the report has just come out from the UN that basically says that uh, none of these are going to cut it. Um, the plant is actually on the trajectory of heading towards 2.7 degrees warming by the end of the century, um, which it's 
you know, kind of hard to get a sense of exactly what that means. But, you know, in Australia alone, there was a report recently published um, saying that if, you know, the world were to reach three degrees warming, for Australia, that would mean potentially the um, catastrophic events like the Black Summer bushfires becoming yearly, um, 50 degree days in Sydney and Melbourne becoming regular occasions. So that's kind of the trajectory that we're heading towards. Uh, and actually, all of the commitments that have been made by all of these um, countries around the world, uh, even if they were to keep to them, um, which is a big if, uh, are going to amount to 7.5% um, reductions in global emissions by 2030, as opposed to mm -hmm. the 55% that's needed. And that's, you know, a big if, um, because as the United Nations points out, uh, none of them actually have plans or policies to get there. Yeah, right. I hadn't actually considered the fact that that's the on-paper targets even <laughs> compared to the reality of what happens, because there seems to be so much dodgy accounting, and well, maybe we can come on to some of that, about what actually a reduction, you know, what the common sense view or what most of us might think is actually a reduction in emissions compared to what um, the politicians say are those reductions in emissions. And Annika, I know you were, you've just um, had a piece in Red Flag newspaper about the sudden change of heart from Scott Morrison and, you know, the Murdoch press having suddenly a huge pro-green everything um, for the last couple of weeks here in, in, in Australia. So this is Scott Morrison who you know, the marketing consultant um, who didn't think that um, the black summer fires of 2019-20 was really a reason to um, do anything about climate change. The guy who took a lump of coal into parliament to show how much he loved coal, which apparently that lump of coal was like lacquered because he didn't want to get the coal dust on his hands. I heard yeah. that. You can't oh have God. dirty hands. Um, mm. So now he's announced this policy of net zero emissions by 2050. Um, how do you explain that um, political shenanigans? Well, I think that the line about how um, delay is the new denialism I think is a pretty apt way of summing up um, Scott Morrison and Rupert Murdoch press change of heart, big transformation. You know, they have these big glossy um, plans that Scott Morrison's waving around saying that, yeah, Australia's going to commit to 2050 targets and um, News Corp putting out a big uh, special with green and gold on the cover. Now, this might sort of look like progress in the right direction, but then you open it all up and it's just pretty clear that this is not progress at all. This is a masterclass in greenwashing and also a masterclass in gaslighting as well. Um, the News Corp um, pamphlet that they put out answered questions about oh, but if we tackle climate change, aren't my bills going to go up? And is climate change really real? Is it really caused by human activity? And, you know, I wonder where these questions might come from other than the very same publication that's put out this big Mission Zero um, statement. And I think for Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party uh, in general, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that 
The political conversation has obviously moved on a bit because the climate crisis is so patently obvious. You have the big bushfires in Australia, but also um, big fires uh, in Siberia, all across America, the huge floods that happened in Germany and China. You've got um, obvious sort of erosion happening in coastal areas, rising sea levels, um, droughts, and then also just other forms of extreme weather events, uh, which mean that the climate crisis is more in people's sort of day-to-day experience. And then a couple of years ago, a big climate movement, which saw tens and tens of thousands of people march in major cities and the rise of figures like Greta Thunberg. So you can't say that climate change isn't happening anymore, but also for governments, they can't do the rapid transformation that's required to deal with the climate crisis because that would mean um, shutting down coal-fired power plants. It would mean countries like Australia not continuing to ship out coal to be burnt um, uh, overseas. Um, It would mean dismantling the American (laughs) army. All of these things would be huge major transformations that they're not willing to undertake. And so you've got to square the circle somehow. And the solution that the Australian government has come to is, well, let's show that we're but let's present this plan 2050, which has absolutely no legislation built into it. It has no plans to actually shut down any um, coal-fired power plants in the near future. It says that 80%, I think, is going to come from um, technological uh, things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen, a bunch of which is totally untested whether it actually can um, have much of an impact at all. And then I think it was 15% was future technological breakthroughs. So, oh, yeah, we'll figure it out later on. Something something will happen. So you can see that... um, Yeah, for Scott Morrison, he gets to look good. He gets to go to Glasgow and say, yeah, we've got a plan. But it doesn't disrupt what's actually going on in Australia at all. So, yeah, I think um, they're just kicking the can down the road but also want to paint themselves a bit of a good image um, Mm. as well because they're being threatened uh, in their blue ribbon seats as well by, uh, you know, people who want to kick Mm. them out and... In fact, more threatened by the kind of climate independence than by the Labor Party, who go along with the same plan, basically. Yeah, absolutely. A bit of tinkering around the edges. Our across the world. Um, and one of the ways we explain, um, as socialists, I know it's talked about a lot in terms of kind of the economic role of fossil fuels that Australia is or Australian capitalism is addicted to fossil fuel is the kind of um uh the the way of capturing that idea so Cormac in terms of um why this is the case in relation to capitalist production and competition like what does that mean Australia is addicted to fossil fuel or Australian capitalism yeah well I mean I guess to start with you kind of can't overstate how much Australia is dependent on fossil fuel and how um, 
massive the industry is. Um, so recently, the Australian Financial Review put out an article that said that Australia is potentially responsible for 9.4% of global emissions, mm. um, which is very, very different to the picture that's always put out by the Labor Party uh, and the Liberals that Australia is responsible for around 1% of global emissions, um, which is basically just factoring for the domestic emissions that Australia produces. So the coal that's dug up here and that's burnt here. Um, but the vast majority of Australian coal, about four-fifths, actually goes overseas. Um, and it represents a massive amount of money. You know, these are exports that earn uh, tens of billions of dollars um, every year with a very small workforce and small overheads by contrast to the massive profits that are made. Um, and, you know, something in the order of 380 million tonnes of coal uh, and around 80 million tonnes of liquefied natural gas are shipped out from the country every year, um, which makes it just makes it the third largest polluter potentially on the planet. Um, so those exports together comprise a massive amount of profits for the uh, you know, tiny minority of people who sit at the top of them. And I think like seeing, seeing that capitalism is a system that's driven by profit is, has to be our starting point. Um, a lot of people talk about fossil fuels as if it's just you know, some kind of like ideological hangover. The Liberal Party is just obsessed with fossil fuels. Um, but actually, the Labor Party goes along with this. And I think the reason that they do is because they see themselves as wanting to run capitalism and these profits are central to Australian capitalism. Um, and they, you know, try and justify this by saying that, well, if we don't ship, if we don't export coal, then someone somewhere else in the world will, which on the one hand um, is absolutely criminal when you think about the costs that fossil fuels are reaping in terms of the deaths from pollution, which a report at the beginning of this year found um, to be responsible for 7.8 million deaths globally. Um, and then also for the effects of climate change. But then the Labor Party's line on that as well is kind of true. Um, it's true that if Australia doesn't export these fossil fuels, then they will be produced and dug up elsewhere, um, which I think points not to a reason for Australia not to shift away from fossil fuels, but actually points to one of the central problems with capitalism, which is that all of these profits are driven by competition. Um, so, competition between companies to produce the greatest profits, regardless of environmental expenses, um, but also competition between countries uh, to, you know, um, have their economies best able to compete, to have militaries that obviously are also, as Annika spoke about, re massively reliant on fossil fuels, on oil, on metallurgical coal for steel production. Um, all of these things, that that element of competition is absolutely central to capitalism uh, and both the Liberals mm. and the Labor Party see that. I think as it's important to just have that outlined in terms of an economic proposition rather than some cultural thing because you're right that, you know, it's sort of like, well, Austra the Australian mentality is, you know, exploit the land and it's kind of like deep in the culture of white Australia or whatever, but actually it's just a fundamentally economic proposition, I think, and if you don't. Um, if you don't necessarily see things that way, then the prospects for change, I think, are much more um, challenging and potentially vague and hard to organise anything around. So, yeah, that's important. And I guess then in terms of Marxist politics, like if we think about the bigger picture and COP obviously being an international gathering and we talk about capitalism as an international system, I wonder if, Annika, you could say something about 
the explanation that climate change is basically a result of capitalism, whether you want to call it the capitalocene or the anthropocene, I don't think necessarily matters all that much. We won't get into that debate, but just some of those links, I guess, between the system of production that is called capitalism and climate change. Yeah, well, I'm not um, going to comment on which scene we're in. A bad um, scene. But it's a bad scene. <laughs> a bad scene for sure. <laughs> Um, well, I think that it's, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can approach a question, but it's like, if you think about, um, the fact, well, if you, if you start with the starting point that, um, profit is the number one social goal of the people who run our system, and then think about all the different ways that they try and get profits. So you start off with a, commodity. You want to produce that in the cheapest way possible. And so you're going to go for a cheap um, power source um, and coal provides that. You're going to go for um, not spending any extra money on things that aren't going to pollute the earth. So you're not going to clean up industrial waste. Um, you're going to jump, dump it into rivers or um, just bury it underground and let it just sort of decay. Um, you want to ship your commodity all across the globe and so you need ships that are going to move fast and that requires um, this uh, a dirty fuel as well that pollutes. Um, and you want to package it in plastic and all the rest of it. So it's about producing things as cheaply as possible on a mass scale as possible uh, and then if you destroy the planet, then that is just um, a sort of unfortunate byproduct in producing that wealth. And then there's also all of the sort of other capitalists, not even just the ones that are manufacturing, but the capitalists who are um, responsible for digging up um, the fossil fuels out of the ground. They have investments in the fossil fuels that are or that are in the ground and not yet dug up. And so if we stop them from you know mining then there's all these future profits that they're not going to be able to realize and what happens to a company if they can't realize future profits they just go bust so they're going to defend um, their ability to dig up fossil fuels um, and continue to exploit the planet because they want to retain their social position as the capitalist class, the rich and powerful, the ones who make all of the decisions in our society because, you know, what would be worse than being like one of us um, to people like them? And then there's the things that Cormac spoke about before about the competition on a global scale between different um, countries. So um, there's all of the countries like India and China that are trying to um, compete on a global scale with countries that have already developed like England and America and Germany and whatever. And so, you know, they're not going to want to stop um, burning fossil fuels uh, because they need to do that in order to um, try and climb their way up the ladder as fast as possible so that they can be competitors on a global scale. So these dynamics of profit and competition um, mean that the planet is just totally disregarded and the lives of ordinary people are totally disregarded. So, you know, that means that we lead to a massive rise of refugees because the low-lying islands are um, uh, 
underwater. Um, it means that there's um, droughts and um, lack of access to food, which also leads to refugees and different um, displacement. So, and that's important to think about it in terms of like that sort of global scale and that question of competition between capitalists and between um, nations, because it's those fossil fuels that are produced by them, that pollution that's produced by them, which is far more responsible for the destruction of the planet than maybe, you know, I don't know how long your showers are, Roz, um, but, you know, people like to often say that it's like individual choices are the things that are the things mm-hmm. that are destroying our planet. So, you know, it's really important that we have a keep cup, have shorter showers, ride our bikes. But and if if that was the solution, God, we'd be in a good place because I think people would be really willing to do that. But actually, the vast majority of fossil fuels um, are used and consumed by businesses and by uh, armies and, um, you know, those decisions are made by the rich and powerful and they're not willing to <laughs> change uh, of their own um, volition because if they do, then they're going to be undercutting their profit so, so much. And actually, like, this question of profit and competition is also partly an answer to your previous question that you asked me about, like, you know, the sudden change of heart towards this green and gold and net zero by 2050, whatever. Like, Twiggy Forest is getting in on this. Mm-hmm. Um, like, a bunch of... Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. They're seeing this as, yeah, you know what, this is good because we can invest into these um, technological solutions. But unfortunately, once again, it's like those technological solutions can't just be the only thing if we're not going to curb emissions and do all the things that I spoke about before. But they see a buck to be made out of it. And that's one of the things that they're pushing to the Liberal government too. And they also see a buck to be made out of government subsidies on all of those things. Like Twiggy Forest is like, okay, I think the Liberals are about to shift, so we shift at the same time and say we'd love to develop this new technology. We need state sponsorship mm-hmm. to do it, so not even their own investments. Um, and just to yeah, and I think, add yeah, to that. Okay. Yeah, because I think like the question of scale is really important in terms of understanding why, you know, there can be sections of, you know, the capitalist class that can be, have an interest in transitioning, have an interest in investments in renewables or green hydrogen or any of that, but still be incapable of actually carrying out the kind of changes that are needed. And the stuff about scale, I think, is really important on that. Like, I mean, basically all of the peak scientific bodies from, you know, like the IPCC says there's like changes of unprecedented scale are needed and they're needed in not just in energy, but in industry, in agriculture, in transport. Um, So changes on an unprecedented scale uh, when all of these industries are run for profit. So like fossil fuels are central to um, cement, to steel making, to synthetic fertilizers and all of these industries are, you know, $100 billion, trillion dollar industries um, that have to be overhauled. Uh, and the kind of overhauling that you would need to undertake would cost massive amounts of money, inconceivable uh, amounts of money to any of us. Um, and that makes them unwilling to do them, to do any, to, that makes them unwilling to undertake any of those changes. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to be Woolworths and Coles suddenly running their lights in their stores with renewable energy. But don't you know, Rosie, you can get um, recyclable plastic toys from Woolworths now. So I know, the yeah. little Lego blocks. It's yeah. a step in the right direction, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I thought they were in little plastic packets, but I could be wrong about that. <laughs> Cormac, let's look. Can I just ask you one? Because I feel like maybe you've got something science that you could say about it. But all of this then is a pretty bleak picture. Um, and we've talked actually to. Jamil before on this um, podcast, if you go back over the episodes about the possibility of a socialism in a hothouse planet. But what are your reasons to be hopeful at this point? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, Long pause. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think there is a reason to be hopeful, but it's not an easy or a painless hope, I guess. Um, Dealing with a climate crisis would mean breaking the power of the people who have everything, um, not only the tiny handful of people, uh, as I guess we've been discussing, um, who control the immense fossil fuel that control the uh, immense fossil fuel infrastructure that spans the whole world and sets the global economy in motion, um, but also all of the well, all of the people who are gathering at COP26, like Joe Biden, um, who presides over the largest um, emitter in the world, uh, which is the US military, um, the you know generals who preside over these armies, the agricultural capitalists and mining magnets, um, and all of the industries that rely on their products. Anything short of a worldwide revolution to break their power um, with a climate crisis, I think, is only a false hope. But then, of course, we're socialists, uh, which means that we don't just look at those above, we look at those who whose shoulders they're standing on. Um, and I think the thing is, with every one of the industries that we've described, there are, of course, people who are making all of that work. So the people who are mining up the coal, the people who are running the transport, the you know massive cargo ships um, hauling coal from one side of the planet to the other, um, the you know people who are involved in making any of those weapons, all of these people uh, don't have an interest in the planet being on fire. We don't have an interest in you know the suffering uh, of the pollution that's jetted out by Australian coal. Uh, the you know worse and worse effects of the climate crisis that we're going to see across the planet. Um, and I think there is a potential for, I think that, well, the vast majority of people already realise this. Most people want action on climate change. And the question is just how you get there. Um, and so I think we have to say that a worldwide revolution in which the masses of ordinary people take power into their own hands is the only reason for hope. Um, and we're not going to get there ob tomorrow, obviously. Uh, but I think that in every protest and every rebellion across the world, um, there is a glimpse of that. There's a glimpse of that that people get a sense of their own power um, and the potential that ordinary people have to transform the world. Um, and even the tiniest glimmer of that matters in protest movements that can convince people to become activists. So, like, I think that a cause for hope is, you know, Black Lives Matter last year. A cause for hope is, you know, any the people who are in Sudan um, fighting against uh, the, you know, coup by the military establishment right now. Every one of these rebellions all over the world can potentially teach people that they have the power to transform society. 
Um, and so I think every one of those is a cause for hope. And obviously, as internationalists, we look to all of them. Um, and on a local on a local scale, um, you know, protests here, the climate strikes that are resurging across Europe, those pose a potential that's not in you know courtrooms or conference halls or you know in government, but actually out on the streets where you know the real power of ordinary people lies. And I think that's important to connect to those other forms of resistance to capitalism because I think it's right to say actually that any mobilisation of resistance against any part of capitalism is part of the climate movement. Like if you think that what we need and the only thing that we need to make that radical transformation that is what all of the leading scientists say that we need, then we need to challenge the power of capitalism. So anyone that's doing anything to do with that, it's not just challenging racism or challenging homophobia or campaigning about and whatever is going on with them locally. Like they're actually contributing to a climate movement, the kind of climate movement that um, we're talking about needing. So I wanted to just finish, Annika, by um, having you say something about the local protests here, why people should come along, why people should get involved and how that's part of a global day of action and why that's important. Yeah, so Uni Students for Climate Justice, we're organising nationwide protests on the 6th of November. And that's part of a global day of action that's been called by the COP26 Coalition, um, based in the UK and a bunch of different social groups, enviro groups, trade union groups, put out this call for people to mobilise around the world which I think is so important that that call's been made because we started the conversation talking about the hot air inside these conferences, the blah, blah, blah that, you know, Greta Thunberg talks about. So we obviously don't think that Joe Biden's going to present a plan that's going to change the world inside COP26, but the protest movements that could happen out the front of the conference in Glasgow but also all around the world can start to reignite the climate movement, which is so desperately needed. Um, to start to confront this climate crisis. So in Australia, like we've obviously got a lot of people who mm. can be targets for climate movement, Barnaby Joyce, uh, Angus Taylor, Scott Morrison, the list just goes on and on, Gina Reinhart, like all of these people need to be, um, need to feel the effects of a massive climate movement. I think it's really important that people come along to these con these protests in Australia as well because we spent sort of nearly two years without having to be able, without being able to have big mobilizations in the streets. Here's our opportunity to be a bit of a small gear that can start to push a bigger gear to push a bigger gear to have a big protest movement uh, around the climate once again in Australia. So. I reckon anybody who's listening to this podcast before Saturday just needs to clear the decks, come along. Um, I'm in Melbourne. We're going to be meeting at one o'clock at the State Library. The Uni Students of Climate Justice page has all the lists and maybe, Roz, you could be so kind to put them in the description of the podcast. Dear Certainly listeners, um, have a look. <laughs> and everyone should Come and meet friends. Annika and Cormac. What? Yeah. Like, yeah, we'll be there to say and hello. And me and Liam Ward. How about that? <laughs> We'll all be there. 
Yeah. And I mean, one thing that's very cool, Roz, about this Global Day of Action is that there's also a strike happening at the same time in Glasgow. And Greta Thunberg has said that she's going to go visit these striking workers in, in Glasgow. And she said every single climate activist needs to support struggles of these workers and struggles like that. So, you know, if Greta Thunberg's connecting those dots, then I think, yeah, that's a really good indication of the type of politics that the climate movement needs to have, which is connecting up all these struggles. So, yeah, we should all be a bit like Greta and do those types of things. Yeah, and don't be put off by the headline of the Red Flag red flag article about Greta Thunberg being cooler than you. Yeah, but you, you can, could be as cool as Greta. Yeah, that's, yeah I was yeah. going to say, you can, oh, sorry, we can all aspire <laughs> in that direction. Um, hey, thank you so much for your time. I know you're both extremely busy activists, um, so we appreciate you being with us on Red Flag Radio, Cormac and Annika. Thanks, Liam and, and Roz. And Liam behind the dials <laughs> or the, on the mouse or whatever it goes on over there. The mouse. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.